Welcome to the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Robert English, your SoCal Seahawk, with my co-host, Brian the Soul Man Solak. And uh, hiding in the background on the ones and twos, we have that damn dirty duck, Matthew Page. Uh, <laughs> today we have a local and legendary football executive, uh, the man who uh, was involved in bring, bringing Hall of Famer Walter Jones to the Seattle Seahawks, uh, and perhaps more importantly, sending away the much maligned Rick Meyer uh, <laughs> for a first-round pick to the Chicago Bears, uh, which ultimately ended up in um, drafting the great Sean Springs. We have Randy Mueller. How are you doing, Randy? I'm doing great, guys. Happy holidays to you. It's good to be with you. Happy Absolutely. holidays to you. Thank you for Absolutely. joining us. Uh, I, I, I'm going off script here. We we talked pre-show, but I got to go off script. Uh, is your nickname Mules? I, <laughs> Hints, yeah, I guess so. You can okay. say that has been forever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I asked that because I listened to Mitchie the Kid Levy from formerly of 950 oh, yeah. KJR, his podcast, and you you were great on that podcast every week. And I mean, how did you get that nick, nickname? If you don't mind me asking. Well, thank you. I guess it comes with the territory of the last name being Mueller. So um, in college, that's what the guys called me and I just kept it. And one one uh, side note, I, I, you probably got it from my email address. Mm. That's how old that name is, because that same email address was with me 35 years ago. So oh, wow. <laughs> there's not many of us with those same email addresses that we had that long ago. So uh, yeah, I just picked it up and it's it's carried through. Oh, awesome. Right on. appreciate you sharing that. Uh, you grew up in St. Marie's, Idaho. Is that correct? That is correct. Little logging town in, in, in St. Marie in Northern Idaho, about an hour South of Coeur d'Alene. Okay. And then you went to Linfield college in McMinnville, Oregon. Went to Linfield and McMinnville from little town in, in high school to a little town in college and had a great experience at Linfield and, uh, was fortunate enough to be a quarterback of a national championship team there in 80, Two, I guess, or 83, 82, I guess. Yeah. What, what was it like winning the national championship? It was at that point, the highlight of, of my career, but I was 22 years old. So it was fun. Um, had an enjoyable time. We had a great group of guys. I don't know if you know much about Linfield athletics or Linfield football per se, but they have a winning, a, a consecutive winning seasons streak going. That's I want to say 65 years. Wow. So it's a lot of wins. I don't care if you're in the backyard playing tiddlywinks 65 years in a row to win that's a lot and so i was lucky to be a part of that for my four years graduated and believe it or not had a job with the seahawks before i left there and, and moved directly from linfield to seattle and been a seattle resident for the most part of my adult life wow that's awesome really quick i gotta ask though i mean playing for that college and winning a championship did you see yourself going into the pros after that or as a player yeah. You know, no, I started out as a ball boy for the Seahawks when I was 16. Okay. So I got a job one summer in Cheney when the Seahawks trained there. And so I had been around it for four or five years. By the time I got out of college, I knew there wasn't a big market for a 5'10 quarterback. It uh, had an average arm. So I I, I knew my expectations they weren't going to, uh, you know, carry me a long ways, but that was great experience for me as a kid growing up and, and being able to be around an NFL team really my whole life and my buddies back home, they all, they, they give me a hard time, but I always say I've had a life that I've never had to work. I never had to work to do anything. So it was started from a ball boy at age 16 to becoming the boss and then spending, you know, 40 years in the NFL. So that was the start of it all back then. And um, really as a ball boy with the Seahawks back in the, in the early days, I missed, I guess, Brian, two years, they, they became a team in 76. I went to work for them summer of 78. Okay. And was there, I don't know, 20 some years after that. So awesome. Well, you guys, uh, you guys totally just ran through my, my lead in, uh, with the ball boy, with the ball boy. Oh, topic. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, 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 <laughs> but no, I love that, that part of the story. It's my favorite part of the story because no one does that anymore. Right. right. Everybody has to know somebody or they have a connection right. or they jump in somehow, some way. I didn't know a soul. Right. I was a long haired kid from a logging town that didn't have a stoplight in it. I didn't know anybody. I always say they hired me, Robert, because my hair was all messed up. I had a perm when I was in high school. So that's why they hired me because I was a whack job. And they said, this kid's crazy. We got to hire him, you know? Right. So. so that's awesome though. I mean, so basically you've been around almost since the inception of the franchise. That's, that's, uh, uh that's pretty awesome. Um, uh, your brother, Rick is, uh, 
also has a uh, you know the whole family I guess has a pe- has a pedigree in uh, in in front office work in, in pro football. Uh, previously a um, uh, an exec for the Eagles, yep. um, and now both of you are in the front office in the XFL. Uh, is that, that's correct, right? That is correct. Yeah, my brother actually was a quarterback at Puget Sound. Played. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember the name Mike Oliphant. Was yeah. a was a draft pick back in the I guess late eighties. My brother was the quarterback of that team, okay. and then uh, was a GA at Washington State for Mike Price, and kind of worked his way up on the on the coaching side for a while, and then became a scout uh, with the Jaguars when their franchise started, and then came and joined me when I was in New Orleans, and he's really been in the NFL probably I don't know 20, 25 years now himself. So he's had a couple different stints with the Eagles, but yeah, it's kind of fun to reconnect with him. He's seven years younger than me. So we're not super close and he lives in Florida. So it's this, this XFL deal has been cool for us to kind of be able to reconnect and, and spend probably more time on the phone the last six months than we have in six years. So it's been kind of fun. Well, let me ask you, uh, I mean, is there something in the water over there in small town, Oregon? I mean, and, and if, and if there is, can we share some with uh, our buddy, Matthew page? Um, because he's, he's, he's off the wall more often than not. Um, you know, we need, we need to, we need to, we need to reel him in. So if there's any, if there's any good juju you have out there in, in small town, Oregon, we need some of it over here for our buddy, Matt. Well, I'll tell you what, it hasn't always been a fun ride for those Oregon duck fans. That's for sure. In fact, when I was at Linfield, <laughs> when I was at Linfield, I remember this, I think Oregon and Oregon state played that year to a zero, zero tie. Ooh. One of the years I was there, I think it was a, I don't know. It was a, a, a triple option team at the time. And yeah, it was a zero zero tie. So that that's my memory of that civil war game per se, but Hey, it's all fun and love and games and love and war. And, and uh, it's all fun for those Oregon guys. And, and growing up in Idaho, going to school in Oregon, and then really spending my adult life, mostly in Seattle, I guess I'm a Northwest guy. So I root for all the Northwest teams. Right on. I, again, I'm going to go off script here you're playing against your brother who who works for Arlington, the new XFL team, and you you work for the Seattle Sea Dragons. Is that circled on your calendar? I mean, are you looking forward to that game and beating the snot out of your brother's team? <laughs> well, if we ever get a schedule, I think it will be circled, but oh, okay. we haven't, they haven't announced the schedule yet. And I understand that's due out later this week. So that'll be fun. You know, we've, I don't know if we've, yeah, we've, we've played games against each other before at the NFL level, because he was in Jacksonville, I think for seven or eight years when I was still in Seattle and I'm sure we played them. In fact, I remember going down there and playing them one year uh, toward the end of my time in Seattle. So we've played against each other before. Um, it's fun. It's fun to be in the business, but it's also fun to have, you know, family and friends involved. And that yeah. kind of makes it those kind of games uh, very, very much to look forward to. Awesome. Uh, 1983, you got hired on by the Seahawks as an assistant pro personnel. What, what's the job entitled? I mean, what do you do as a, as a person in, as an assistant pro personnel, what were your duties as that you had to do for the Seahawks? I did everything, Brian, that nobody else wanted to do. <laughs> oh, and no. I kind of prided myself on that, to be honest with you. It kind of got me to where, you know, I was the boss 20 years later, but everybody had crap jobs, right? And, yeah. and I didn't have any problem doing it. Back in those days, there was very little computer. We had our own in-house computer, but we had to enter it everything by hand. We used to get newspapers, so you get a kick out of this, from about 20 different cities in the country, all NFL cities. We would get newspapers delivered daily. And they might come a week late or four or five days late. But someone had to go through those sports pages and pick out all the injuries, all the character stuff, everything that had to do with a player. And your biggest source was the beat writer in that city. So I kind of got to know the beat writer just because I read every paper, the Tampa Tribune. I could give, I'd be good to be on Jeopardy naming all the (laughs) newspapers around the country, right? Because I went through them as a kid every day. So that was a big part of my job. I did a lot of computer input stuff. I did a lot of, back in those days, there was no digital film. So we used uh, uh, tape, right? So I used to have to take the practice tape down to King 5 to get processed after practice, bring it back home, all the errands, pick up everybody. I was a gopher and I loved it. Like I said, it's, it's, I had been around for four or five years in the summertime. So that's really what landed me the full-time job. And so I had a really good relationship with the powers that be, you know, Mike McCormick was our GM and he's the one that signed off on hiring me full time. And 
a lot of those people are still good friends of mine today. And the people that I worked for when I first got there ended up coming with me 20 years later to New Orleans and then Miami, and they're still around. So it's a group that became family way back then and still family, uh, 2000, almost 23. Awesome. Randy, I, so you came around uh, around the same time as Chuck Knox, right? Um, I, I started the same year. The same mm -hmm. year, same year. Uh, now, what was the culture change or what was the culture like with with, uh, with the hire of Knox in the Seahawks organization? Well, when 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 Chuck came from Buffalo, our, our team had actually changed out their coach. Jack Patera was fired about halfway through okay. that 82 season, I guess. And Mike McCormick was the GM and he took over on an in interim basis as the coach. And he was also the GM. So he brought Chuck in the following year and it was, you know, I had never been around during the season. So I don't know that I could witness the culture change, but I know this, when Chuck showed up, he showed up with respect. It was old school. It was ground Chuck, baby. It was hard, you know, hard knocks the whole bit. And, and we were known for running the ball, but it's crazy we threw the ball very good then too. And in Chuck's first year, 1983, we went all the way to the FC championship game. So it was new to us all. I thought I'd be back every year. It was so easy. I was a you know, kid out of college and I thought, shoot, this is easy. We're going, we're one game from the Super Bowl. the first year I had in the NFL. So Chuck made it fun. Um, Chuck was hard on everybody, including us little kids from little logging town of Idaho. But I think it made us better. You had to allow yourself to have thick skin. He coached hard. He treated all of us hard, but at the same time, there were times when, when I was driving him to the dentist or, or home somewhere sometime where he'd actually, he'd show that caring part. And the greatest coaches I've ever been around all have that, you know, they can kick you in the butt and, and beat you down. But 10 minutes later, they can also be asking about your family and hug you. And those are the best leaders I've ever been around that can, can be demanding, but yet, you know, they care. And Chuck was one of those guys. I was lucky to be around him for what, I guess, 10 years or so that, that he was there. You found, you that, was found a... that, that early success. It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, winning early in gambling and you think it's going to, you think it's always going to work out like that. And then, yeah. they, <laughs> then it doesn't. Well, happen. we had a good run with Chuck. I think we were in the playoffs maybe four out of six years that his first six, seven years there. So we had some good playoff runs and, and uh, it was great for me to learn from respected pros that, kind of were at the top of their game. So I was lucky. I was very lucky. Awesome. You, you say it was great to learn, which I 100% agree, but what what give us one or two things you learned from uh, Coach Knox that helped you become the great general manager that you ended up becoming? Well, I don't know how great I was. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> but but I, I, I can appreciate having, and my goal was, I'm not, I don't, for some reason, Brian, the older guys in the business took a liking to me. So I think it was because I did all the shit work, you know, and, yeah. and they knew somebody had to do that, but I could sit around and listen. And that was probably a strength of mine. And I think that became without a doubt, my biggest strength as a GM is I was a pretty good listener to this day, I think. And, and so I think back then, for some reason, the older guys, they were okay with me being around and listening. One year, our quality control coach got sick. He actually had cancer. Oh. And so I filled in as the quality control coach in my second or third year in the business. So I got to take off all the film, every breakdown of every opponent with, with Tom Catlin and Ralph Hawkins and George Dyer. And these are legendary coaches in the, and I spent hours with them every day. And I, I didn't deserve that. I didn't know anything, but I was wet behind the ears, but it was awesome experience. One year in training camp, our video guy wrecked his car. So guess who became the video guy all summer? He, he, his hands were bandaged so he could tell me what to do. He just couldn't do it. So I had to do it all. I had to film practice, had to take the film in every day, wow. you know? So I got to learn all kinds of the business those first few years. And then I was in a position where I could make a difference when, when free agency came in and the salary cap came in, it was at that time that I was kind of one of the decision makers in the Seahawks office. So it kind of leveled the playing field for, team building and experience around the league. And I guess that was, oh, I don't know, sometime maybe 89, 90, somewhere in there. But I had the same amount of experience dealing with salary caps, dealing with contracts okay. as George Young, Bobby Bethard, guys that are in the Hall of Fame, because wow. they didn't know it either. Yeah. It was brand new. And I was young enough where I could just jump in, right? 
and I didn't care. I, uh, I didn't know any, I didn't, I didn't have any scars, any battle scars or anything to, to expunge from my mind. I just jumped in. So I'm a year into it and I have the same experience as they do. And these guys are 60 years old at the time and I'm 30. So I was lucky to be involved in some monumental time frames in the league and and especially for us in Seattle to where I got to jump in and learn and it was on the job training and on the job learning and those are the kind of experiences that I gained from from the older guys but then I got to experience some of that stuff when it was new in the league free agency had never been there was no free agency so I got yeah. to jump in when it started and learn it and so I, I, I it didn't take me long to figure out that I could maybe even figure out some things better than the old guys because I didn't have those scars or ways or habits or anything. So in a way, it was a big benefit for me. You're, you're on the bleeding edge. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Not to say I didn't take a few blunt objects along the way, but it was it was definitely easier when nobody else had any more experience at those kind of tasks than I did. Okay. <clears throat> that's awesome. Um, one last question. I know Rob's got several questions to ask you, but where, where do you get the, your energy level? Is that from your mom or your dad? I mean, I, I appreciate your energy level. I, that's one thing I, I knew growing up, I knew who you were, but until I started listening to Mitch Levy's podcast after he left KJR, I, I didn't realize such an energy level you had. Where do, where do you get that from? Well, I'll be honest. I love the game. I'm really passionate about the game. I mean, I've been around it and lucky to be around it my whole life. So when we talk about football or fishing or hunting, I've always just been a passionate guy. And those are the things that have floated my boat for years. Um, I'll say this, and I, I think we all be some of what we are to our parents. My dad was a really hard worker. He was a grinder. He was a seven day a week guy. So I kind of got my work ethic from him. But my mom was the personality. She was the bubbly one. She was the communicator. And so I got that from her. And so I was lucky. I was I was a single, uh, an only child for, I guess, six years before they had any more. So I was kind of ahead of the curve in my own house a little bit. And so I think some of that rubbed off on me early on. And, and I've been fortunate to, to be able to use whatever skill set. I knew I wasn't smarter than anybody else. So I either had to outwork them or, or uh, you know, out-talk them. So that, that kind of worked <laughs> to my favor, I guess. Right on. Mad respect. Seriously. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. So uh, what was it? 95, you're promoted to VP of football operations. Uh, how much influence um, do you have in that position? Um, and and what was it working with uh, working in that position when Tom Flores came into the uh, to, to the fold? Yeah, that was one of those positions where I was over both college and pro scouting at that time. And and mind you, I was still pretty young when that happened. And Tom was the GM. So I took orders and direction from Tom, who be, then became the coach and the GM. But really, he was the coach, right? So somebody had to do, again, all the work, or at least the behind the scenes work while he could coach and manage the team. So I was fortunate to be in a position that I could do some of that. And again, it was great training for me later on. But yeah, that was when the Bering family owned the team. Um, they put a lot of faith in me. I know sometimes the Bering family takes a beating in Seattle and and their reputation mm -hmm. isn't always the best. But I'll say this, they were really good to us as employees, good to us as workers. Mickey Loomis and I were kind of the top, top decision makers at that time. Ken and his son, David, they were really good to us. So that, that wasn't necessarily an easy time because we saw the bashing that they were taking. You know, we moved the franchise to LA and that was a failed attempt. And we were kind of in charge at the franchise that time, at that time. So we were executing a move that we didn't, weren't necessarily believe, didn't believe in, didn't want to leave. We were both there and obviously Northwest guys, Mickey's from Oregon. I was from Idaho. We were together in Washington. And so that was a hard time for us, but it really, again, these experiences are what shape you, right? I don't care what the business is. I don't care what the industry is. It just seemed like I had a lot of experiences and a lot of chances to prove what you could do. Some people are in their job for 20 years. They never get a chance to prove what they can do. And that's, that's to me is, is hard. In, the, in our business, in the football side, it seemed like I had chances to prove myself numerous times and was lucky enough to do okay in those roles. So, I mean, I guess that I became a GM at age 39, just because I had had a lot of experience and, and a lot of spotlight at certain times and we'd done good. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go off script a bit here. Uh, you gave me a couple things that I that I wanted to grab onto and, and, and run with, but I'll go with this one. Um, just talking about that that time in, in Seattle and in, in, in Seahawks football when the team was looking to move to L.A. Um, and ultimately, you know, started the process so far as to even, you know, going moving into training camp down there. Um, what was what was that like really because it see it seems that there was there was there was there a sense that there needed to be a level of trust built back with the city of Seattle um you know just after the team trying to leave and then and yeah. then you know ultimately you know staying and then there was the the sale of the team and all that what 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 just what was the dynamic of that whole that whole situation it was crazy i don't i mean i don't ever plan on writing a book but that would be a great chapter or two robert yeah. i mean it would be it was really it was something. And, and I, I can start by saying, and I've told this story before, Mickey and I, and I, I, Mickey Loomis, who is now the GM of the Saints, who, who I brought with me to New Orleans as my assistant, he's been there the whole time. So he's been there 20 years, but we were together for 17 in Seattle. And I remember we went to a Super Bowl that year, whatever year that was, it was in Phoenix. And it was when Ken Berry owned the team. And I remember waking up Super Bowl morning, we we're staying at the Biltmore in Phoenix. And he called both Mickey and I's rooms and said, Hey, come up to our room for breakfast. Uh, want to go over a couple of things with you. We had no idea any of this was going on. Right. And so he has us come up to his room at the Biltmore and we think we're going up there for breakfast and coffee and Hey, mimosas, who knows? This is, this is the <laughs> owner, right? This is going to be fun. We, we did have that, but about halfway through the conversation, he says, Oh, by the way, um, we're going to move this team to LA um, we haven't been able to make any progress on getting a new stadium. And, you know, before you guys leave, the trucks are going to be there next Wednesday. And oh, by the way, keep this franchise rolling. Keep us rolling, okay? So that, those were our instructions. That's where we got the information of when the team was moving and what to do. And and the trucks were coming like in four days. And I remember us flying home that afternoon. We didn't stay for the game. We flew out of there. We just figured we got a lot of stuff to do, man. We got to get out of here. We didn't have any, we had no mental framework to stay for a football game. I know right. that. So I think we were both in tears and there was a, some other staff members that had gone as well. And we were close to them and we told them the news on the way home. And I feel like everybody was kind of in tears all the way home, wondering what the hell have we got ourselves into? What are we going to do? Sure enough, the trucks came a few days later. We packed up all the stuff. They boarded up the, the Kirkland office and we took an office at the um, Marriott, uh, either Spring Hill, I think, in Bellevue. And we took two suites there and we made that our office. It was almost like a hideout, like you were making some deal and you had to go hide out to have meetings and, and um, get your mail delivered. And Because they boarded up the Seahawks office oh and everything was man. on trucks moving to LA. And then before we knew it, we were on, we had hired Dennis. Dennis was the head coach, Dennis Erickson. And so we all go to LA when the trucks arrive, we're going to move into Rams Park and renovate Rams Park. Well, everything sat on the truck for a couple of weeks. We we monitored this reconstruction of Rams Park, which was an old facility that the old LA Rams used to be in. And that was all being done while we were there. Um, our players showed up for the off-season program. And at that point, it was like, I don't know, late February or so. And they started our off-season program there. And, and it wasn't for a couple more weeks that Paul Tagliabue uh, order, gave an order of return. And uh, if you don't return, it's a million dollars a day fine. And so oh. we ended up packing everything up and had Season to go back fit. to Seattle. And mind you, we're just the messengers, right? We have nothing to do with this. We, we're, we're two Northwest guys trying to keep the franchise alive. So we end up moving it all back to Seattle. And yes, we had to reconnect not only with fans, but friends and, and teams and, and, and uh, agents. And it, we were in the middle of free agency while all this was going on. And I remember in the trunk of our car at Rams Park, Mickey and I signed a couple of our players. We, were, we had nowhere to, for an office, right? We were literally nomads. We had the trunk open, our papers spread out in the trunk. And this was before when cell phones were like 10 inches long, right? You had these old cell phones. It was like a satellite phone. And we're using these to make deals and sign our players. I remember we signed on the way home one night, Mike Sinclair on an, on an airplane phone. Um, and he was a free agent. We signed Daryl Williams, a safety from Miami and who became a pro bowler with us in, in Seattle. 
He didn't even know where we were going to be. I said, I can't tell you if we're going to play in LA or Seattle. He said, I just want to play for Dennis. So we had all these quirky connections of a group of guys that we were able to put together during that time period that made it like, this is crazy. You, I mean, you can't make this up. You know, it, it would be an interesting book someday to get the stories of all the stuff that happened with this, because that time period in not only Seattle sports, but in Seahawk history was crazy. And there were a f- few of us, Gary Wright, longtime PR guy for oh. the Seahawks, Mickey, myself, we were at on the front lines trying to put out fires, but yet battle the bushes all at one time. So it was crazy. <laughs> you, you you speak of books uh, uh, or chap- chapters or and or books, you know, Seahawks, but really Seattle sports. It seems that there's always some sort of turmoil when it comes to the, the, these teams leaving, attempting to leave the city. It's it's under a guise of some sort. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, we yeah. saw that with the Seattle Supersonics, you know, it, you know, it was it was it was underhanded in a way, yeah. you know. So, yeah, God, that, that, that that's so strange that there could be there could be a a, a novel written about, about that yeah. whole deal. These experiences are crazy and, and they'll probably never happen again like that. And I don't know if we're fortunate to be part of it, but we that sure learned brutal. a lot through the whole process. I remember good? one quick story when we were in L.A., Dennis and Mickey and I, and we had worked tireless hours and it was like midnight or 1 a.m. We're driving around in in a car in Newport Beach looking for apartments to lease because that was the first chance. We had been there a couple of weeks living in a hotel and they had said, you need to find a place to live because we're going to get you guys out of the hotel. So we're driving around midnight, 1 a.m. looking for apartments in Newport Beach. I mean, who who shops for apartments at one in the morning in L.A.? You know, I mean, it was just crazy. That kind of stuff happened. It seemed like every day and we just rolled with it. And I guess we didn't know any better. We just carried out what we were supposed to do. It was kind of a weird time for sure. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, Besides trading Rick Meyer for a number one pick, what Please tell us one great moment you had as a Seahawks VP. Well, there were lots. There were lots. And and, and that had kind of started the ball rolling. Like you said, that year we had, I think, the 11th pick. And we traded Rick to the Bears for, I think, the 10th pick. So we had 10 and 11, two picks in a row after that trade. And the thing that I always come back to is we turned 10 and 11 into three and six where we picked Walter Jones and Sean Springs. Now we could shut down the draft after that, but it just worked out to where there's probably a 30 for 30 on us taking that 10th and 11th pick and moving up (laughs) two different times because I had so many trade deals that we almost made. And it just so happened that dots got connected draft morning. We made the move to go from 11 to three for Sean Springs a month or so ahead of the draft. And then we made the one that actually got us Walter when we went from, I think, 10 to six on draft morning after we had been turned down by another team and we were all distraught. But I remember after making those two deals and we actually had Sean and drafted Walter coming back in the draft room and everybody was smiling. Everybody was kind of clapping. Everybody was kind of celebrating. And I remember saying, what happened? What, what did we do? And I was the guy on the phone making these deals, right? So it never really even dawned on me what we had done or how it happened, really, because you're in the middle of it, right? You've got bullets flying all over. You're taking calls from this team, that team, talking to these guys and getting turned down by this group. But the people that are, were there and kind of just watched it, that I they I like to hear them tell the story because they that that franchise was very happy at that time and it was probably one of our greatest days in the off season anyway acquiring players when we got Sean and Walter both the same day. Awesome, uh, Randy. Anything that you could, if you could, I should say, anything you would do over as uh, Seahawk VP. Um. I don't know if I would do it over as VP, but I had an opportunity one time after I left the Saints to come back to the Seahawks. And it was, Mike was the coach and the GM. It was that time when, when they were struggling and, and they were going to hire a GM to help Mike in the process. And, and they offered me a chance to come back and I didn't. And that's something I'll regret for the rest of my life because that, the Seahawks are my team, right? Why wouldn't I do that? It just didn't feel right at the time. And, and I didn't, but that's a regret that I have probably more than any decision, any trade, any, any free agent signing or anything that we did that, that has always haunted me forever is not being able to come back when 
when I was wanted. And this was Paul and Paul Allen and Bob Whitson and those guys offered me a chance to come back. And, and I just didn't do it at the time. And I ended up going on to Miami a year later with Nick Saban and, and that was fine, but Seattle's home for me. So that, that's one I wish I could do over for sure. Right. <clears throat> right on. Speaking of the Miami dolphins, um, just a kind of a more general question. Um, at Miami, you get uh, Bill Parcells come in um, and who pushes to be the coach and GM. Um, in your opinion, I mean, we've seen examples in the past in the NFL where being coach and GM at the same time just doesn't usually work out all that well. Um, in, in your opinion, is that, is that, are those, should both those jobs be separate? Do you, do you think it's really, is, is it a good idea for someone to try to be coach and GM? Well, this is just my opinion, Robert, and I don't know how they could do it. If someone asked me as GM to sit and they said, oh, by the way, can you coach the team too? I'd say, get, are you crazy? Get out of here. I don't have time to do that. Plus it's a total different mindset, right? It's a yeah. total different skill set. It's a total different mindset and it's a total different group of people that you have supporting you to make decisions in those separate offices. So I never have understood it. I, I get it. Most of the time when a coach does have all the bells and whistles, they do hire somebody that can run the other side of it for them. Like I had that in, in uh, Miami when Nick Saban was the coach. Nick Saban was the GM too. He made all the calls, but he, he, he gave me the GM title and I pretty much handled all the scouting stuff. Mm. Um, I'm not kind of, I, I did the scouting stuff and worked together with him really closely. So I think if you have the right head coach and Mike was like that in Seattle, I stayed one year when Mike was there home and it was great. I love Mike and I worked really good with him. I could care less about titles. I, I'll, in fact, I'll say this. I've worked under coaches. I've worked level with coaches and I've worked as a coach's boss. The relationship was never any different, nor was our decision-making. It was never different. We always did everything together. And if we didn't agree, we're going to pick a different lane. And so that's always been my philosophy. And, so I say that it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to give all the bells and whistles to one person. If that person is willing to uh, delegate, I think it has a chance. If, if they don't, and if they are afraid that they have to make every call on everything and don't trust, that's a hard one to overcome. I don't think that job's for everybody. That's for sure. That's a very interesting uh, uh, thing you just said there about, about that that cooperation between the levels. Uh, I, I think there, there may be, I, I don't know if that, if that goes, if that holds true throughout the league, but if it does, I think there's a, a very big misconception. I think maybe to the average fan that, you know, the levels are, are indeed separated and there is a real true, you know, difference in power between the levels. But if there's really a co cooperation there, uh, I think that's, that, that's, that's awesome. Well, the goal is, I'm not saying it always is. I've been around and I've heard of places that are totally dysfunctional. Yeah. And, and so that's going to come back to bite in the butt for sure. So I don't, I'm not saying it, it it's not, it's perfect out there, but that's always our goal. I've never been part of dysfunctional front office, but I've, we've all heard the horror stories sometimes around the league of mm -hmm. GM and the head coach. They don't get along. They can't communicate. They don't do this. They don't do that. Whoa, whoa. You got no chance if that's the case, no chance. So you might as well just move on and, and the fans should hope the owner figures that out sooner than later. I, I got to ask, what was it like winning GM of the year for the year 2000 when you were the New Orleans Saints? I mean, maybe you don't think you deserve it, but I think you deserve it. You've worked your ass off over these years. I mean, what were your thoughts when you won the award? It was fun. It was, it was an interesting time. You know, when we left the Seahawks and went to new Orleans, they were really bad. You know, they were wearing the bags. They had yeah. just fired uh, Mike Ditka and Bill Q. Herrick. Um, we changed Brian about half the team that first year. And probably the first month we were on the job, we probably had 20 new guys and I'm talking about new players. Wow, and so okay. we made a ton of changes. They had some salary cap room, but they had no draft picks. They had traded for Ricky Williams the year before we got there. And so they had given away all their draft picks. So we had to make our hay by identifying younger ascending talent and, and get them at the right price. But we had room cap wise to do it. I think that's what to this day separates the good franchises from the bad. We always try to overcomplicate it. I really think it's about evaluating. There's a lot of people in the NFL that can't just because they're at the NFL level, they're not great evaluators. And that's why I think those franchises struggle. 
Some people are just better at evaluating. And I think we did a really good job that first year in New Orleans, not only changing the culture, because we had to change everything. And I give Tom Benson credit. He gave me complete autonomy to do it any way I wanted. You know, he got a bad rep, God bless him, because he, he passed a few years ago. But he always had a bad rep about being cheap or not being willing to do what it took. He did everything that I wanted to do. He never said no to me. And I was only there two short years. And, and we turned around a franchise that first year that you mentioned where Jim Hazlitt was coach of the year. I was lucky enough to get voted uh, uh, front office uh, executive of the year. And that was a good thing. And the two of us worked really good together. Um, that was probably the biggest key. I had Mickey as my right-hand man on, on cap stuff. I brought four other guys from Seattle with me when I went to New Orleans. So it was really a team effort. And part of the reason I brought the guys with me that I did, I knew, and this sounds unfair, but I knew they would put the rest of their lives aside for mm. about four months because that's what we did. It was really no family, no friends, no nothing. We worked you know, tirelessly 18 hours a day that first few months on the job when we got to new Orleans, cause, cause believe it or not, I went from Paul Allen's computer empire yeah. to the saints where they kept track of players on index cards, Rolodex. Oh wow. So you had Rolodexes where the player's information was. So I had gone from the penthouse to the outhouse. So we had a million things we had to change, not only culture, we had to change processes. We changed it all. And Sometimes you get lucky to where the chemistry comes in right, right away. We had a few good players there that bought in and said, Hey, these guys know what, we're, what they're doing. The Willie Rofes, the Joe Johnson's, the, we had, had some really good players, Leroy Glover. We had guys that were on that team that bought into us. And so I credit them because they could have made us spend two or three years proving ourselves to them. But they bought in right away. We made a bunch of changes. We signed Jeff Blake. We traded for uh, Aaron Brooks. Those two quarterbacks, really good. And then I brought three or four players with me from Seattle too. Darren Smith, Fred Thomas, some okay. of these players that were really good players for us and, and were good in New Orleans. And so our timing was right. And, you know, we 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 made it happen. We we The Rams were the defending Super Bowl champion that year. And, of course, we were in the same division with them at that time. We were in the old NFC West. So, okay. you know, it's Atlanta, it's New Orleans, it's the Rams uh, and Tampa. Those were, we were all in the same division back then. And we ended up beating the Rams uh, in, in St. Louis. We lost to them the last game of the year in New Orleans, but we had already clinched a playoff spot. And then we turned around and played them again in New Orleans six days later and, and beat them in the playoffs for the Saints only. Well, at that time, it was their first playoff win in franchise history but it took back-to-back -to -back weeks to, to play the rams and that was the you know greatest show on turf that was the kurt warner rams that were really good so Absolutely. credit to our coaches and our staff and it's funny you i i guess at some point we'll probably talk about the xfl several of those coaches that were with me then are with us now and with the seattle dragons so it's it's been a fun uh first few months for us on the job and very few days go by where we don't tell a few stories about New Orleans and our time there together. That's awesome. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Rob. I know you have a question too, but why did you trade off Ricky Williams? If you don't mind me asking to Miami. <laughs> we were there one year with Ricky. And so he had been there two years. And I don't think it's a secret that Ricky liked to do things away from the office. Okay. He had a lot of stuff going on. And, and it was one of those things where the year, the second year we were there, we ended up drafting Deuce McAllister in, in a in a draft day deal that surprised a lot of people because we had Ricky. But I, I after being there a year with Ricky and and knowing all the things away from the building that were going on, I, Jim and I both felt Jim Hazlitt, our coach, that it was going to be hard for us to completely trust uh, our families, our our livelihoods, everything to a player who was going to be maybe our best player, but had all this other stuff going on. We just couldn't do it. So we did get, I only dealt with one team during that trade, um, traded him to Miami for what became two number one picks. Um, it was a really good deal for both teams. Um, so I didn't go down there with the intent of moving Ricky after a year, but what, what transpired was, and led us to drafting Deuce McAllister, who went on to become the franchise all-time leading rusher um, after I left. It's funny, the, the, the all-time leading rusher at the Packers was Amon Green, who we drafted in Seattle and got traded right. there. Uh, so I've been a part of a couple 
acquisitions of all-time leading oh. franchise running backs, but haven't been around to see any of it for either <laughs> one of them. So, um, so that happened. We moved Ricky to Miami. Or be known three years later, I go to Miami and guess one of the first guys that's come in my office he, was Ricky Williams. Oh, so, no. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> he was at the Dolphins still during that yeah. time. So I had another stint with Ricky, and I like Ricky to this day. He's actually one of my favorite guys. I enjoy being around him. Okay. And I think his life has improved off the field since then. But as you know, in Miami, he was suspended for a couple of years here and there and had had some demons that I just wasn't really ready to deal with at my age and where we were in New Orleans. You know, that wasn't exactly a great place for that right. type of stuff, you know? Understood. I, I, I don't think I'll ever forgive the Seattle Seahawks for uh, the management, how, how things went with Amon Green. I think it was, it was the very, it was very next season when he went to Green Bay and led the league in rushing. I was very yeah. upset about that. I always thought, you know, I had this nothing against Ricky Waters because Ricky Waters was great yep. for us, but, yep. but, but Amon Green would come in and, and uh, to spell uh, uh, Ricky running waters and he would, they would run that sweep to the right side. And when he put his foot <laughs> in the ground and yep. would just blast through that line, it was amazing. I'm like, but he couldn't hold on to the football, but they, but <laughs> and, they, yeah. they, they, they figured that out in Green Bay and the guy led the league in rushing. They um, figured out how to do it. And, and the main reason we ended up with Amon Green, and, and I brought Ricky there too, so I loved Ricky. If I, I'd like to have a dollar for every day Ricky was in my office saying, now, Randy, why is this a good thing when I'm standing on the sideline and this kid is doing this? You know, he, he made me explain it to him a, a dozen times, and, and it's the same. I'm just making stuff up, right? Well, I want to say because he's pretty good. But I love Ricky, too, so I'm trying to soothe his ego a little bit. But Amon Green, and I'll say this about – and to this day, it's still the thing that I use as criteria for drafting a running back because Deuce was like this, too. When they get the ball, and you know what you're talking about, Robert, he puts his foot in the ground and goes, that kind of makes my heart flutter a little bit. Mm -hmm. That makes me, he might go. Yeah, That is a feeling that as a GM or as a guy sitting upstairs, if he gives you the feeling he may go on any given time when that foot hits the ground, I want that guy on my team. Exactly. And that's why we drafted Amon. That's why we drafted Deuce in New Orleans. They both had that ability to put their foot in the ground and go, and it might be 70 yards. Right. So that has always been my criteria for a spending that kind of capital on a running back is, does he give you a chance to go the distance on any given play? Right. Just by putting his foot in the ground and going. Yeah. And and they were both fast. They could both really go. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm on and I'm on had, had a few of those plays with the Seahawks. And, and the other thing about him is that the guy had gigantic thighs. He was, he was, yeah. he was a, he was a strong, you know, you know, he was a thick guy, you yeah. know? So once he got going, it was tough to bring him down. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't I don't want to derail too much, but you mentioned earlier about um, e evaluating, uh, you know, that, you know, it being the the, the real um, determ determining factor in, in, a, in a front office is, is evaluation. Um, how, back in 2012 or leading into 2012, leading up to the, the drafting of Russell Wilson and, and then that 2012 draft. Uh, we had the Seattle Seahawks, Pete Carroll, John Schneider had, I mean, some great ac acquisitions, great acquisitions. You know, they, 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 a lot of them as, you know, misfits and things like that, you know, uh, leading up to the point that they became the great team that they were. Mm -hmm. um, but subsequent to that, the, the drafts have been leaving much to be desired. If you ask, you know, the, the, the general population, um, right. do you think that it's, uh, 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 an issue of e evaluation or do you just not hit a home run every year? Well, I think you definitely don't hit a home run every year. I think part of it is, is time and place for sure. I think the best draft picks that I've ever been a part of, and I think you could trace this back to, to that draft you're talking about with John and Pete was the best drafts I've ever been part of are when the players, when the best player on the board is also at a position of need for you. That's somewhat lucky, but that's when you strike gold, okay. when it's at a position of need for you, but he's still the best player. I've been around drafts when I haven't been in charge where we drop down a whole bunch of names to pick a guy because we really need that. Wait a second. We just passed over three guys in the second round that we've spent all year putting in the second round, but because they don't fill, we, we're going to fill out our depth chart. So we're going to pick somebody down here later. I think that's a, and I'm not saying they did that in Seattle at all. I'm saying the year you're referring to, they had needs and got the best player at those positions where their needs were. That sometimes is reflective in one, the depth of a draft, and two, you got to be a little lucky. And, and then 
develop those guys as well. You talk about misfits. Those guys, maybe not, they didn't fit the perfect mold, but they all also were developed by coaching staffs that really knew what they wanted and what, what to do with them when they got them. And those players were willing to be coached and that's part of it as well. And and that's not always the case when you get guys, you, you have the talent that you've rated and, and you acquire talent, but then that guy's got to fit in his scheme and he's got to be developed by your coaches. And so there's a three-tiered approach to getting good. Uh, and, and when you talk about draft picks, those things have to happen subsequently, and that doesn't always work out. Right. Okay. I know we want to talk CLC Dragons with you, but I got to ask, Long story short, obviously with Wilson leaving and how the Seahawks are playing this year. I mean, we had to go there, didn't we? We did. <laughs> we did. <laughs> what What does John Schneider have to do, in your opinion, going in the offseason with the draft coming up? We got two high, pretty much high picks. I mean, we go for a quarterback of the future. We go for a defensive lineman. I mean, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are you take the best player available. Okay. It's not like this team is is – you know, set at a bunch of positions, right? Yeah. I think you've got to forget about need, forget about setting a quarterback table for the next 10 years. If that happens to be the best player on your board, then great. That's what you do. But don't start searching around for something that's not there. You're just as apt to find a quarterback of the future in round two or three, like they just did. So again, if you're evaluating and we're all on the same page with the criteria we're looking for, you'll yeah. find good players throughout the front end of this draft, but I would do everybody. And again, this is just my opinion. I would, I would stick to the integrity of the process, which allows me, I mean, if you're going to pick, especially in the top five, you have got to get a great player and it, it's, it's the best player that you've spent the whole year lining up five guys, take the best player that's there at, at five, and not be worried about needs. That's for sure. I always go back to my story of when Lawrence Taylor and Carl Banks were together in New York, they had Lawrence Taylor, right? And, and uh, I think, I think Parcells was there at the time. They said, we didn't need or need a linebacker. Well, they drafted Carl Banks anyway. And guess what? They became two of the greatest linebackers to ever play. And they didn't really have a need for Carl Banks, but they did it. And that's my point. Don't be, don't be pressed to filling a need, especially, especially in those first few rounds that I see a lot of franchises nowadays that they're drafting to fill out a depth chart right away. And, and what you end up doing is you bypass better players, not only in the first round, but in the second round, third round, you're bypassing better players to fill needs. That's going to, that's not going to turn out good. It's just not, you're not going to, for one thing, you're not going to have the players at other positions that you need. You end up building a mediocre team of, of mid round picks is what you do, but you've got your draft. You've got your uh, depth chart filled out. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's a, a a sin I see a lot of teams make around the league. Absolutely. I think the good thing for Pete and John is that people know that they're good at their jobs. They get it. I I, I would trust solely that they will do just, you know, what they what they know to be right. John's a really good evaluator. His staff's very good. Um, I think that 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 should allow Seahawks fans to relax for sure. All right. That's good. Because okay. that, that's if there's one thing that Seahawks fans need to do, in my opinion, it's relax. <laughs> you know, I, I, I you, 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 you see all, and you know, and we, and we get on this podcast, uh, Randy, and 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 we do all of our wind bagging and belly aching and all the stuff that we do mm -hmm. because we're we're critical of the team that we love, you know. But when it really comes down to it, you see things for what they are. This team was slated to do very little this season. We've blown right. expectations out of the water. Um, we're in the mix for the playoffs. You know, I mean, you know, yeah. the, the quarterback position is what it is. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you can't really, uh, ask for too much more than what we got this year. Um, sticking with the XFL, uh, you were with, uh, Houston, uh, the roughnecks just last before, time around. Yes. 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 Just before the pan. So this is the third, if you will, iteration of the XFL, right? So, yep. um, just before the pandemic hit, um, if it weren't for the pandemic, uh, do you think the XFL would have would have lasted, if you will, you know, had had the staying power to keep going? Um, you know, we're, I think we're really we're really hoping this year with the XFL and um, and the other league, which is USFL, yeah, USFL. Yeah. I, I think we're hoping that that we, we get, we're gonna get some year round football. We're gonna have kind of two feeder leagues for the NFL, if you will, even though they're not officially called feeder leagues, right? But yeah. um, you know, uh, but do you think the XFL would have would have would have had the staying power uh, back in 2020 if it weren't for the shutdown? 
100%. I think we'd be going into year three. I don't think there's any doubt. The spring football has been proven to be one watchable on TV. The, the ratings are decent. Um, so the content is good. The quality of play, in my opinion, is is good. Um, and the NFL wants it as well because they want players to be developed and sent back to them because they're let's face it, the minor leagues are the colleges and, and that's in a little bit of disarray. So I think right now, Spring football is is a commodity that really makes for the football ecosystem, like you mentioned, Robert, year-round. I think we would definitely be in year three, and I think – and I'm not sure there's room for two spring leagues, but this first spring will be interesting to for that reason. But I think the time frames are, are different in that the XFL window, we start in January. The USFL really doesn't start till March. So there's a couple months in between there and they actually play into the summer. We'll be done by draft time, the end of April. So there's going to be a lot of football. I don't know that there's enough players to sustain top quality uh, three leagues, but I do know this. I've been pleasantly surprised at the quality of players we found for the Seattle Sea Dragons this, this time through. A lot of good players. I think a lot of players that didn't get opportunities whether it was because of COVID, the sixth year being given in in college ball, there's a ton of good players now that the NFL just can't absorb. They don't have enough seats when the music stops, right? And so I've found that I'm excited to see a bunch of these guys that we've been able to acquire for the Seattle franchise going forward. I think people are going to see a good product and a high quality product. And, and Brian, let me jump you real quick okay. uh, just just to just to piggyback on that. Um, uh, can you, uh, Randy, name a couple of players that you're excited to see this year for the Dragons? Well, for one thing, we have two quarterbacks that I'm anxious to see. One is Ben DiNucci, who is the last cut of the Cowboys, who actually started a couple games for them in years past. Um, been a really good player for us this spring. Our other quarterback is a guy named Steven Montez, who um, I guess I can say this. We're, we're going to lose him for a few weeks here to a practice squad, I think, in the NFL, but okay. hopefully get him back at some point. And uh, so we've got well, we've actually lost three guys since our draft in November, two NFL practice squads already. So that tells me, one, we're on the right guys. But two, if we get them back, we're going to have a high-quality team. And and I think that's good. Jim Hazlitt, again, we've mentioned him in the broadcast. He's our head coach. June Jones is the offensive coordinator. So the, wow. the brand of offense we're going to play is, I don't want to say crazy, but it's going to be wide open. I love it. Mm -hmm. um, throwing and catching challenges these leagues. That's the biggest thing because there's not enough quarterbacks, right? But I think we've done a decent job in Seattle where I'm excited to see our receivers coupled with these quarterbacks. I think we'll be able to throw and catch better than any team in the league. So I think that bodes well for us in the long haul. We've got some NFL receivers, a couple of guys that I'm shocked aren't on practice squads right now that are fast and just need opportunity. And so we'll see how it shakes out, but it's going to be fun, a fun, fun, fun thing to watch. Wow. So this is going to be the anti-Seattle Seahawks football <laughs> <laughs> well, I, don't know about that. I know this june's always told me a perfect game is if we don't have to run the ball so i don't know right. <laughs> that goes against every fiber in my body by the way but right. i'm okay with it you know we were five and oh in houston hopefully we can keep that up in seattle right on uh i gotta ask did dwayne the rock johnson approach you and ask you to be the the director of player personnel with clc dragons or he was not the one that approached me, but I've met him a few times. Obviously, okay. uh, a unique. I, I actually met DJ when I was the GM of the Dolphins because he's a okay. Miami guy, right? Yeah. And he'd come into our office then when Saban was the coach, and I got to meet him then. And in fact, we we talked about it one of the first times we reconnected this summer when when we decided to do this. And um, I mean, I, I I always when you do what I do and have done for a living, the team building part the processing of these kind of informations, it's an awesome job. You don't get a chance in the NFL to do this from scratch. I really love doing this from scratch. We're building teams right from the ground up and, and that you don't get to do that. And I will have done it three times now. I've done it three times in the NFL now done it three times from scratch. I just think that's kind of cool. Nobody gets to do that, you know, and I've been lucky enough to be involved in a couple of these spring leagues to do it. And, and to DJ's credit, the rock, Danny Garcia, they've been awesome. They, Danny Garcia is impressive now. I don't. She, her name is on the football. The first woman to ever have her name on a on a, and she's oh. really, for all intent purposes, the commissioner. She's engaged. 
She's around all the time. She's into it. She's knowledgeable. I think people are going to be blown away when we start playing and they start even to see more of, of Danny Garcia and her and her and the rock used to be married. So they are very close um, still to this day and they work great together. And that that's only a good thing for those of us guys running these NFL teams for sure. I mean, the uh, XFL teams for sure. That's awesome. awesome. That's very that awesome. is awesome. Well, hey, listen, we're we're as we uh, round out the show here in the last few minutes. Um, again, I I want to I want to absolutely thank you for taking the time to nice. sit down with us, Randy. This has been awesome. It's a pleasure to meet and speak with you. Um, uh, do you care to promote any uh, any projects or any social media or anything uh, in our last couple minutes here? Well, the the things that I do now, other than the XFL, or and and Brian mentioned it. I, I this is our third season. Mike Sando and I have had a podcast on the Athletic Forum. We it's called the Football GM comes out every week. Um, gosh, it's grown like crazy. We have, I think 40,000 downloads wow. a week now for this, for this. Yeah, it's, it's gone nuts. And obviously the athletic is a great forum for it. Um, they have a subscription service, but the podcast is available free to anybody who, wherever you get your podcast, you can download it for free and it doesn't cost anything. You don't even have to have the subscription to the athletic anymore. So that's the big thing that I spend most of my time on. I watch a ton of tape. It keeps me going. I do some work for heavysports.com where I write and do some audio for them as well. Um, I probably watch as much tape nowadays as I did as a GM, but I can do it on my own time. Right. And if fishing's good, yeah. I can go fish it. You know, so th that's really the only thing I would mention is the podcast. And, and, uh, I, I have a little consulting business, MuellerFootball.com, where I write a blog on there as well. And people have grown to kind of like that. And I'll write about things from the GM chair. And, uh, I get consulted often from NFL teams, from other teams, uh, all, all, and other industries, believe it or not on leadership and stuff like that. And I enjoy speaking to people and, and doing that to groups and uh, that's that's gotten me in front of a lot of people that I love to meet and visit with. So I can't complain about anything. That's for sure. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Well, we're at the point here where um, uh, Randy, where we like to give shout outs uh, at the end of the show to, to close it out. Um, any any, you know, to any anything, anyone, anything, anything you can come up with, uh, whether it's uh, somebody personal close to you or someone in the sports world or anything like that. Anyone you get want to give a shout out to for the rest of the world. Well, my shout outs are few and far between. Uh, I have family and I have a few friends, not too many of them, but um, I'm a big Sounders fan. So I'm shouting out to the Sounders. Oh, my nice. daughter works for the Sounders. So I've become a, a soccer fan over the last few years and I'm really into it. So I'm hoping that uh, Garth Lagerway uh, has has exited now. I, I, and I love Garth. I'm hoping that they don't miss a beat and, and Brian can keep that group together. And, and uh, my shout out would be to the Sounders to have a profitable and a very successful 2023 coming up. Awesome. Awesome. And what do you got for us, uh, Soul Man? <clears throat> Since we didn't have a podcast last week, my shout outs to former Wazoo coach Mike Leach. Mm -hmm. May he rest in peace. He passed away last week. Uh, lots of great memories. He turned Wazoo's program around and put us, put a name on the map for my university. Uh, qu quick story. I'll make it, I'll make it obviously, but. Abraham, who's our our head in chief, Randy, he couldn't make it tonight, but him and I went to a post-game press conference a few years back, and one of the local reporters said, watch how Coach Leach ignores every question I ask, and <laughs> long story short, he tried to ask every question, and Coach Leach's response was, Bueller, Bueller, from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and he, he would completely ignore him and move on <laughs> to the next question is pretty entertaining. And I, I'm going to miss the guy. He's yeah. He did a lot for college football. And he did a lot for Washington state. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Amen. No doubt. Amen. Yep. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I'm going to give my shout out to a, a good friend of mine who I've known since, um, since high, at least high school, if not before, uh, a good friend of mine, Danilo uh, Punesto Jr. He, um, you know, I'm 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 coming up on 40 here, Randy. So I know I'm probably, you know, some people will still call me a baby, but I'm feel like I'm getting old. <laughs> and a uh, uh, good buddy of mine um, actually uh, had a a, a minor uh, um, uh, heart attack uh, just just oh. the other, just a couple of days ago. Um, he's a couple years younger than me, you know, so wow. I just want to give him a shout out. He's he uh, he had a, uh, you know, uh, you can't call it a minor surgery, but he had a, a surgery um, and he's on the mend. He's recovering. 
um, and he's doing well. So I just want to shoot him out um, and let him know that my thoughts are with him um, and, and all that good stuff. So looking out for you, buddy. Good job. And let's see if uh, I don't know if we can get uh, Matt Page to jump on that the damn dirty duck. Does he want to give a shout out uh, to the world? Uh, no, I just uh, just wanted to wish everyone a happy holidays. Uh, you you know, this is the coming up on that time of year right now, obviously. And um, I hope everyone has a, a safe and 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 fun holiday with their with their family and friends. Right on, right on. Well, all right, guys. Hey, listen, I want to thank you again for joining us uh, on the SSU podcast. Please take time to uh, check out our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Captivate FM, uh, as well as join us on uh, social media on Facebook and at Seattle Sports U on Twitter. Uh, we will see you guys next time and go Hawks. Go Hawks and go Sea Dragons. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> thank you.